All right, good morning. Please turn with me to the book of Philippians. Our focus this morning is going to be on chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. And just the summary of this morning is to, to, to work because God is working, or to work out your salvation because God is working in us. So we will look a little bit at the context and then read and then turn to our passage. But before we do, let's pray together. Father, we know that you are the one who spoke and all came to be, who commanded and all stood firm, that everything exists because you are the one who spoke it into existence, and you are now the one who upholds all things, who sustains all things, that it is in you that we live and move and have our being. And we know that it is now to that same word that we will turn, Your word, which brought all things to existence, you have given to us. So we ask that you would help us to receive your word with meekness, that we would be as those to whom you look, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at your word. Jesus, we thank you that you did not leave us alone, but you sent us the Holy Spirit to be our helper to instruct us and guide us and teach us and illumine our eyes to the truth of your word. So we give thanks to you for that, and we ask that you would pour him out upon us more and more so that we would behold you and we would be changed to be like you. Amen. All right, so the book of Philippians... Just, you can see from chapter 1, verse 1, that Paul is the one who wrote this letter and that he wrote it to the church at Philippi. And from other parts in this letter, we can see that Paul wrote it while he was in prison. So he was in jail and he was writing this letter to encourage believers to continue in their faith, to rejoice in Christ no matter what was going on in their lives. And... Well, as well as to give thanks to God for a gift that they had sent to him. So in chapter 1, if you have the ESV, you'll have the same headings I have, but the ESV has verses 3 through 11 entitled Thanksgiving and Prayer. There, Paul is just giving thanks to God for the work that God was doing in the Philippians, and he prays that God would continue to work in them. Then the next section is the advance of the gospel and to live is Christ. And from verses 12 through 26, Paul is describing what was going on in his life. But unlike what often we do when we're going through trials, Paul didn't simply describe what was taking place, but he described what, was, what God was doing in the midst of his circumstances. So rather than writing to the Philippians and saying, Woe is me, I'm in jail, pray for me that God would get me out of this mess. Instead, he says, Yes, this is where I'm at, but this is what God has been doing in the midst of it. That God has used these circumstances to make everyone know that I'm here for Christ's sake. And that as a result of my imprisonment, people are more bold to proclaim Christ. And then he says, 
that his great desire was not first and foremost to be removed from his trials, but that Christ would be honored no matter what went on. And that's the, the well-known phrase there in verse 21 where he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he didn't ultimately care what took place because his great desire is whether he lived, whether he died, no matter what took place, that Christ would be honored, that Christ would be glorified. He expected that he would be released, that he would be able to see the Philippians again, but he said, no matter what, this is my desire. Then in verse 27, he he gives this command to them. Chapter 1, verse 27, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Is it? I'm hearing like some feedback. Is anyone else hearing that? Just a little bit? Okay. Um, so he says that that is what his desire is, that Christ would be honored, and whether he came to them or not, this was to be their focus, that their manner of life was to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that then becomes his main theme for the verses which follow. So we're going to start reading there in chapter 1, verse 27, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 13. So Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now still, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And here's our passage, but notice how it begins with the word, therefore, which shows that Paul is now bringing a conclusion to what he's just been talking about. Therefore, my beloved brothers, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we'll stop there. So, Paul gives this command in in chapter 1, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on to explain what that means, as well as to give uh, the perfect example of, of of what Christ has done. The perfect example of the life we're to live in what Christ has done. So he says, have this manner of life, be worthy of the gospel. And I looked, and it was over a year ago. <laughs> At some point, you all remember back then. Um, for those of you who are here on a Sunday night when we looked at that, to have a manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, we saw how that doesn't mean that we, uh, that we earn the benefits of the gospel by our life. It also doesn't mean that we actually live the gospel, but it means that we're living in response to the gospel and we're living to reflect what Christ has done for us. So to have a manner of life worthy of the gospel means we're responding to what God has done for us, and we're reflecting what he has done. And that's what Paul then begins to exhort the Philippians to do. He, he urges them to, to live a life of unity. And he continues that in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. He describes these gospel benefits that we have received in Christ. And he says, in light of that, this is then how we're to live our lives. So notice he's not just giving moral exhortations, just saying, do a little better, try a little harder, be a nice person. No, he's saying, this is what God has done for us. Now, live a life worthy of that. Respond to what he has done. Reflect what he has done. So he called the Philippians to, again, live a life of unity, not to be focused on self, but to focus on others above self. And then he calls us to, to behold Christ. He sets forward Jesus, what he has done for us, as the perfect example of such a life. Why are we to live this life of humility? Well, because of what Christ has done for us. That he chose to be regarded as he ought to have been regarded as one who is fully God and fully man. But instead, he chose to humble himself, to suffer and die upon the cross. And as a result of that, he has been highly exalted above all. That then brings us to our passage for this morning, where in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul begins by saying, Therefore... So in light of what Jesus has done, in light of Him being highly exalted by the Father, in light of this command to live a life worthy of the gospel, therefore, this is now what is to take place in our life. And you can see in verses 12 and 13 how He gives a command. The command comes at the end of verse 12 where the command is to work out your own salvation. And then he describes the manner in which that is to take place and also how and why we are to do it. So the command is to work out your own salvation. The manner we are to do it, we'll see we're to do it diligently and we're to do it reverently. We're to do it with fear and trembling. And how and why we are to do this is because God is at work in us. So the first thing is, is what is it What was this command that Paul gave the Philippians? 
And by implication, what is this command that we are to obey? And the command is to work out your own salvation. Now, this phrase shows the importance of understanding things we read in the Bible within the context of the paragraph, within the context of the book, and within the context of the the entire Bible. Because at first glance, we could look at this phrase and come away with the conclusion that we are to work for our salvation. Because notice how closely those two things are together, work and salvation. So we could say, oh yeah, that's what Paul's saying. Work out your salvation. You better work at it, because if you're not, you're not going to be saved. But why should we not understand this phrase in that way? Well, even within the letter itself, we can see Paul is making clear salvation is not as a result of our works, but salvation is a result of, of salvation comes to us by grace through faith in Christ. So you can see over in chapter 3, verse 9, he's giving this testimony that there's all these different qualifications he could have pointed to as reasons why he should be accepted by God. But he says, I count all of them as, as rubbish, as garbage. I've abandoned all of those that I may gain Christ. And he says in verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he says he's seeking a righteousness. He's seeking to stand before the throne of God and to be declared righteous, to be accepted by God. How? Not as a result, um, not having a righteousness of my own, he says, that comes from the law. So it's not something he possesses because he obeyed the law. Instead, how is this righteousness coming to him? It's coming to him by faith in Christ. And... The, in the same regard, you can think about the well-known verse from Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says what? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So salvation does not come to us as a result of our works, Salvation comes to us as a result of what Christ has done on our behalf. Another way, though, that we know that Paul is not saying that we're to work for our salvation is just by noticing that he doesn't say work for, but he says to work out. And listen to how one author described the difference. He says, that whereas to work for your salvation would mean that it is an objective to be reached or a benefit to merit, to work out your salvation means that it is a possession to ever explore and increasingly enjoy. So when we work for something, it's saying, it's out there, and you better go and get it. When you work out something, it's saying, no, you have this, Now seek to develop it, seek to mature in it, seek to experience it to a greater degree. And you can think about just the helpful analogy that when you work out, that is when you exercise, what are you doing? You're seeking to develop and mature something that you already have. 
You're seeking to grow in something you already possess. You want to strengthen your muscles. You want to strengthen your body. You want to exercise your body so you have it. You're wanting to work it out. Not work for something, but to work it out, to develop it. And so, in the same way here, when Paul is saying work out your own salvation, it's something we, we possess, but something that we are to grow in, something we are to mature in, something that we are to experience the realities of to a greater degree. So it's not something we work for, it's something that we receive by grace, but it's also not something that we just store away which is often the picture we can have is that you can pray a prayer, now you have a ticket to heaven, and so maybe you go and put it in, in the bank in one of those, what do you call those at the banks? Safety deposit box, there you go. You put it in the bank, you put your salvation ticket in the bank, and now you can just go and live your life. And whenever you need to get that ticket, you just go down to the bank and grab it. No, what we're seeing here is what? No, salvation is something we receive freely, but it's then something that we are to grow in, that we're to mature in. This phrase, for, those, for the, the kids, if you get those little, uh, those little booklets when you walk in about listening to the sermon well, here would be a good word to write down for words that you, you don't maybe know is the word sanctification. We've been seeing uh, justification and sanctification in Hebrews as well, and sanctification is what that we are growing to become more and more like Christ, that we're increasingly and progressively becoming more like Christ. And that's what we're seeing here, is we're to work out our salvation. We've been given to it freely by God, now we're to grow in it to become more like Christ. So to work out our salvation means that we are to grow in it, as well as to think out how does our salvation apply to every area of our life. So we are to grow in our salvation, as we noted, just, just as we exercise our physical bodies, so we are to exercise, exercise ourselves spiritually. How do we do that? Well, First Peter has a helpful thing that helps us to see one of the places where we can see that. In First Peter chapter 2, In verses 1 through 3, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the word is good. So he says, how do we grow up in our salvation? Well, we long for the pure spiritual milk. What is that milk? Well, again, within the context, just before this, at the end of chapter 1, he's talking about the living and abiding Word of God. So the milk by which we grow spiritually is the Word of God, and we are to long for it so that we might grow. And if you've been around a newborn baby, you know how they... That, that picture just this morning, I was a little slow on getting Judah his bottle, and so he, He's crawling around, crying, making all kinds of noise. Why? Because he wants his bottle. He wants the milk. So that's how we're to be. We're to have that eagerness, that longing for the Word, that by it we may grow. Now, we have the Word. Okay, we grow by the Word. How do we grow spiritually, though? 
What do you think, kids? Do, if it's by the Bible that we grow, okay, if we want to grow our arms, what do we do? We lift weights. So if we want to grow spiritually by the Bible, is that what we do? We lift the Bible? Will that help us grow? Not spiritually. It would help us grow physically to some degree. But the way we grow through the Word spiritually is as we meditate on the Word and as we then obey the Word. And to meditate means that we're, we're constantly thinking about it. Unlike secular meditation or Eastern meditation where you're actually emptying your mind, Biblical meditation is you're filling your mind with the truth of God's word. You're filling your mind with the truth of who God is so that you are then able to obey his word in all areas of your life. So you can think about Psalm 1. The blessed man is the one who meditates on God's, who delights in God's law and meditates on it day and night. Or you can think about what God told Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, what this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. For what purpose? That you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So if we're going to work out our salvation, part of what that means is that we are seeking to meditate on God's word, so that by God's grace we are able to obey his word. And that, that meditation is as well that it's, we are thinking out the implications of our salvation for every area of our life. So we're thinking, okay, this is the salvation that God has given to us. This is what he has done for us in Christ. Now, how should that impact the way we live? And we saw how Paul did that very thing at the beginning of chapter 2. How he said, these are the benefits you've been given. Now this is the way your life should be different because of it. And also, in Titus 3, Paul does this. He says, this is the way you're to live your life. You're to relate to other people in a certain way because of what God has done for you, what he has done for us. So we should be kind towards others. We should forgive others because that is the very thing that God has done for us. So this command then to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling is not just an, not just an exhortation to try a little harder, but again, it is a response to what God has done for us in Christ. He has freely given us his salvation, this salvation, and so we are to work it out. We are, seek to, we are to seek to grow to become more like Christ. Now, within the context of the letter, the primary application for this is with regard to unity and humility. Because that is what he's been saying since, since verse 27 of chapter 1. He's pleading with the Philippians to live a life of unity. He's pleading with them to live a life of humility, just as what Christ has done. And one of the reasons why he was doing this, it seems, is because there was two women within the church who were, who were divided, who were not in agreement. You can see this over in chapter 4 of Philippians. In chapter 4, verse 2, 
he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So you can imagine this letter would have been read in the church, and there's these two women who are not in agreement. So you can picture one sitting over there, one sitting over there, and they're just looking at each other in total disgust. And they're hearing all of these things being read about living in humility, pursuing unity, looking at what Christ has done. And then towards the end, then their names are actually brought up. It's, here's these two women. I entreat you women, do not continue in this division. Come together, forgive one another, love one another, be united together. And that would have been, when Paul was writing this, we can see within the context of, of the letter, to work out your own salvation, he was, it would have been a plea to, to live this life of unity and humility within the context of the local church community. And while we typically even think about work out your salvation, we're thinking very, as an individual, it is also within this corporate body that as a, as a body as a whole, though each of us have this personal responsibility to do this, it's within this community of the local church we are to be pursuing this. We're to be working out our salvation together. So just as sort of a case study, consider what it would have looked like for these two women to work out their salvation. What would it have looked like for them to think out the implications of of their salvation for what was going on in their life. And so they would have, using from Ephesians, one thing they should have considered was what? They should have been kind to one another. They should have been compassionate to one another. They should have gotten rid of this bitterness and anger. Why? Because of what God had done for them. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, Verses 31 and 32. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So that was what they should have been thinking out, what they should have been meditating upon is what has God done for me? God forgave me. God loved me while I was yet in my sin. And here I am holding this bitterness, this anger towards this other person. So regardless of what, the, what Iodia or Syntyche was doing, what was the personal responsibility of, of the individual? Regardless of what the other person do, did, their call as an individual was to love, to forgive, to seek the interest of the other. Now, how easy is that? It is really, really hard. When someone is not loving towards us, when someone is continuing to be mean towards us, to be angry with us, we have no inclination at that point to love them. We have no inclination at that point to be kind to them. It is only as a result of God's grace. It is only as a result of us seeing what Christ has done for us 
and by the power of the Spirit that we are then able to do that to show love to them. Because when did God love us? He did not love us when we were lovely. He loved us while we were yet in our sin. That's when he chose us. He didn't chose us because we got our act together and all of a sudden we were these great people. And he said, yeah, I'll put them on my team. No, it was while we were yet sinners. Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's when he did it for us. And so true biblical love is not us loving those who are lovely. It's us loving another person regardless of what they're doing. How different would, these two, would the relationship of these two women have been had that been being worked out in their life? So that was the, that's the primary emphasis, it seems, of this working out your own salvation. But because it is a general command, we ought not to limit it to one specific area. But instead, all areas of our life we should be thinking, what does this salvation that God has done for me, how should that affect the way I'm living my life? How should that affect my marriage or my parenting or my singleness? How should that affect the way that I see my, the sickness I'm going through or this conflict I'm having? How has what God has done for me in Christ affects, how does it affect these things? So that's the first thing, is we're to work out our own salvation. Now, what is the manner in which we're to do this? And we see two things here. We see that we're to do this diligently, and we're to do this reverently. So notice first, diligently. At uh, Philippians 2, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. So what did he tell the Philippians? He he described how they had had this pattern of obedience, that they had demonstrated this, this pattern of obeying Christ in their life. And he said that now... Though I'm absent from you, you were doing this when I was present with you. When I was with you, Philippians, I saw how you love the Lord, how you were obeying the Lord. Now that I'm absent from you, keep doing that. And in fact, do that much more. They were not to allow Paul's absence from them to give them a reason to become lazy and passive in their walk with Christ. But instead, they were to be diligent about it. They were to be Fervent. They were to be seeking to, to do this with zeal. And notice how just they would have had this command from Paul, not hearing it verbally from his mouth, but hearing it read from his words, which is the exact situation that we're in here, that we're, we are here today, is that we cannot hear Paul audibly speak these words, but we are able to read these words that he wrote just as the Philippians would have done. So we are absent from Paul, and so the same implication is for us, that we are to do this command with diligence, with zeal. We're to put off all laziness, all just indifference towards this command, and instead we are to passionately seek to work out our own salvation. He also says we're to do it reverently. At the end of verse 12, work out your own salvation. How? With fear 
and trembling. And this is how one author described this phrase. He says that one does not live out the gospel casually or lightly, but as one who knows what it means to stand in awe of the living God. And that makes total sense in light of verses 9 through 11 of chapter 2. I mean, just, I was kind of, not that it really matters what I was struck by, but just notice how 9 through 11, we're told what? God has highly exalted Jesus, bestowing on him the name above every name. And there will come a day when every knee will bow before him. Just how sobering that reality is. And then Paul says what? Now work out your own salvation. So we are to do this command having that awareness of who Christ is and what he is going to do. We are to be working out our salvation in the awareness that God has highly exalted Jesus above all. And that he will come again and all will stand before him. Now, as those who are God's children, this fear should not be one of terror regarding what God will do to us. Because in Christ, there is no condemnation for us. So we have confidence that just Jesus paid it all, right? When before the throne, I stand in him complete. My lips shall still repeat, something like that. What Jesus paid it all, that we will have that confidence when we stand before him, we will be accepted. So there ought not to be that, that sense of terror, but there still ought to be a sense in which we fear God, we reverence, we respect, we stand in awe of him because of who he is and because of the fact that we will stand before him. Paul described in 2 Corinthians 5 how he knew that he would give an account He would stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He would give an account of his life, not to be judged and condemned, but to be evaluated for the way he lived. And so he said, in light of that, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So he knew he would stand before Christ and his life would be evaluated. And so in light of that, what did he strive to do? He he strove to live a life pleasing to the Lord. So as we seek to work out our salvation, we are to do it in the awareness of who Christ is. That he is the one who sovereignly reigns over all and that we will stand before him on that day. We will stand before him, adoring him for who he is, but as well as having this um, evaluation of the way we have lived our life. And so in light of that, by his grace, we are to seek to please him in all that we do. There is, though, for those who are apart from Christ, the fact that when you stand before him, you will stand before him to be judged and condemned. 
that on that day every knee will bow before him. Some will bow before him freely and joyfully acknowledging his lordship, but others will bow before him because they have been crushed under his kingdom. And that is what what we see in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, the nations are described as those who are seeking to throw off God's restraints. They're done with God. They're going to do things their own way. And what does the Lord do? It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. That when all the rulers of this world are planning their things, we hear about all the things that are going on that are so opposed to God. What is God doing? Is God concerned about what is taking place because he doesn't know if they're going to destroy his kingdom? No, he is laughing because he knows that all of their plans are futile. And he is laughing because he knows that he has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. That his king has been established. That he has exalted Christ. He has anointed Christ. And Christ is the one who will rule the nations. Who will establish his kingdom and all his rebels will be destroyed. And so in light of that, what is the the call in Psalm 2? The rulers of this earth are called to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling. The very same words that we see in Philippians. So the call is for those rulers who are living in opposition to God to come to be reconciled to Him, to acknowledge His Lordship, to begin to serve Him, to begin to acknowledge that Christ is King. And so for those who are here today who are still separated from Christ, who are still refusing to acknowledge Him, the call is to come to repent and believe, to acknowledge that Christ is King, to turn from the continuing to try to be in charge, continuing to try to be your own God, and instead to acknowledge that Christ alone is Lord of all. So what are we to do? We're to work out our own salvation. How are we to do it? We're to do it diligently and reverently. And now last is why and how are we to do this? It can be overwhelming to think about working out our own salvation because we can feel so burdened and so overwhelmed already and it's like okay great now now I gotta just do another thing but what a great encouragement it is that Paul didn't just leave us with verse 12 but he gave us verse 13 because in verse 13 he says not only why we are to work out our salvation but how we are able to do it And he says that, verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the salvation that God gives to us is not merely external. It's not merely that we've been forgiven of our sins, that we've been declared to be righteous externally, but there is also this internal transformation that takes place. Regeneration is part of the salvation that God gives to us. He gives us a new life. We were spiritually dead. He makes us alive, which is what allows us to be able to believe. And also, it's the, it makes it possible for us now to begin to walk in obedience to God's commands. So God's plan for salvation is not just that we would be forgiven and continue to be enslaved to our sin, 
but it's actually that we would be delivered from our sin, that we would now walk in newness of life, that we would be a people purified for God's own possession who are zealous for good works. So, it's not that we are saved by God's grace and now we have to live our, the Christian life on our own strength, nor is it that God forgives us and then just kind of abandons us, but instead God forgives us, He justifies us, and now He is in this seeking to do this process of sanctification, of making us more and more like Christ. That God is at work in us. And what is God working to do? Notice how Paul says, God who works in you, both to will and to work. So God is at work in us to will and to work. To will means he's, he's seeking to change our desires. He's changing the things we're wanting to do. And we've been seeing this so clearly in the book of Hebrews with the new covenant. How the new covenant is not no longer just these external commands, but now God writes his law on our hearts. That now we have this new love for God's word. As a young boy, I went uh, with my parents to San Andreas to help uh, replant the church there. And there is an old, old guy who used to say that God changes our want-tos. He changes what we want to do. Because that's what he does. He gives us new desires that, as a believer, we no longer want to do the same things we used to want to do. Because, but he internally changes our desires. Changes, he's at work to will and to work. Meaning he, God is working to strengthen us to do his commands. He gives us the strength to do it. And because He's giving us the strength, now we are to do it by His grace. And what is He working to do? The end of verse 13, He's working for His good pleasure. Notice He's not working to make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, like the, like the prosperity gospel. Nor is He working to make us feel and function better, like in secular counseling. But instead, he is working so that we would please and honor him in all things. He is at work in us for his glory. Which is why he was not ultimately concerned that Paul was in prison. What was God concerned about? That Paul would honor him whether he was in prison or not. And so in the same way, God's primary purpose for us is not that we would be removed from the trials in our life, but that we would honor him no matter what trials we are going through. And what an encouragement it is that God is at work in us. Consider how much secular counseling abounds today. used to be if you were in counseling, it was kind of seen as being a taboo thing. Now it's really like if you're in counseling, it's sort of like a badge of honor. And yet despite all of that, we see just... So many people struggling. Because what can secular counseling ultimately offer? They can ultimately offer some behavior management or modification. They can give us some coping mechanisms. They can say, oh, you should set up these boundaries in your life to keep these people away. But which one of them can offer this? God at work in you. That the living God is at work in us to will and to work. 
So though an unbeliever cannot hope to experience true change, because by nature we are dead and enslaved, as believers we can have great confidence that we can experience true, deep, and lasting change. No matter how difficult the relationship, no matter how paralyzing the fear, no matter how deep of darkness the depression, that we can hope, we can honor the Lord no matter what is taking place in our life. Because God is at work in us, and He will complete what He has begun. The God who spoke all things to existence, the God who measures the waters in the hollow of His hand, the God whose purpose none can stay, before whom all the nations are but a drop in a bucket. This is the God who works in us. And so we can have confidence that He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to his power that is at work in us. So as we close, just consider again these two women. These two women, Yodia and Syntyche. How would their situation, would have, how would it have been different had they realized this, that God was at work in them? How would it have been different if they had lived with reverence before, the, before this truth that Christ reigns over all. Well, they ought to have been encouraged because God was working in them. So no matter how hopeless the situation they were in may have seemed, they could have confidence. Yes, despite what it may seem, I can honor the Lord in this. They also ought to have been convicted by the fact that God was working among them to unite them, and they were seeking to be divided. So it ought to have convicted them to seek to be united just as as God was seeking to do among them. And then it ought to have just caused them to stand in complete awe and wonder before Christ. Savannah and I would often, in different hard times we've gone through, we'll ask each other, have you seen Jesus today? Because in, in difficult times, what do we see? We see the people who are, who are such difficulties to us. We see the, the pain we're in. We see the loneliness we feel. We see and feel this deep anxiety. But what all of us need to see is we need to see Jesus more and more. We need to behold him as the one who sovereignly reigns over all. We need to behold him as Paul beheld him, as the one to whom, whom knowing is of surpassing worth. And so if we have him, he is all that we need. And so no matter how difficult life may seem, we can have hope that by his grace we can honor him, and in him we can be satisfied. So here's this command. What are we to do? We're to work out our own salvation. How are we to do it? We're to do it reverently, and we're to do it diligently. And why and how are we to do it? because God is the one who is at work in us. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for that encouraging truth that you are at work in us. You, the God who reigns over all. You who has numbered every star, who sustains every star, who made every star that you are the one who works in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. How that is our great desire to fully please you in all that we do. 
Thank you that though we ever fall short, that you love and delight in us because of what you have done for us in your Son, that we stand before you righteous and accepted no matter what else goes on in our life. But help us in seeing that to then be diligent about working out our salvation as you work in us, to be diligent about growing to become more like your Son. And how we look forward to that day when forever we will dwell with you in perfect joy. For you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing our